The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Integrity is a funny thing. I only recently realised that integrity wasn't necessarily about always being good or just. Um, It's about an open, honest consistency between your words and your actions. You can be an absolute jerk and be open, honest, and consistent about it. Um, There's a certain begrudging respect that we give to those people, right? You know, that's why there's uh, some people don't mind the Kyle Sanderlands uh, for a blast from the past, Um, Simon Cowell, Jeremy Clarkson, or Gordon Ramsay. Um, But what ends up crippling the message of Christ or our culture's trust in the church is when Christians don't live up to the standards that they aim to strive for, or even worse, when they grossly violate them. What's the first thing that you think of when you hear me say the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, or Catholic priest? Honestly, there's this breakdown of integrity. The world has actually rendered a righteous judgment on the church. However, it's ironic that the judgment that they render is actually, in many ways, a Christian one. Tom Holland, not like jacked gymnast Spider-Man Tom Holland, but the historian Tom Holland, who is a well-respected non-Christian historian, um, said that it's a commonly held belief in history that the church ushered in this age of superstition and that it is modernity and enlightenment that that effectively led to people shedding these Christian presuppositions and returning to classical values. By classical, I mean Greek or Roman values. But Tom Holland has become famous for coming out as this atheist historian and saying this quote, Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It is a principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of, human, of, is of equal value. In my moral and ethics, I've learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. The world has rightly rendered judgment on the church where it has fallen short, been immoral or unethical. But the deep irony is that it is the Christian moral ethic which is being held up as a mirror. And so what does the Bible say about integrity? I believe that the passage that we're looking at today is actually saturated with this idea. And to give you a structure of my message from the outset, we are going to walk through one, a model to emulate, two, a mountain to climb, three, a means for guidance, and four, a mark to aim for. Four M's, Kyla will love it. Um, but let's go, let's, go, let's go on. Let's have a quick recap of where we're at in this book, Second Timothy. It's believed that this is the last book, the last letter written by the Apostle Paul. And to catch us all up so we're on the same page with the story, in the beginning, God. I won't read the whole book, but in the beginning, God created the world and it was good. We were designed to live in relationship with him, exposed, walking and living and working with God. But sin entered the world, humanity missed the mark. 
They fell out of step with God through disobedience, through pride, which resulted into life descending into the world as we know it. A life filled with God's image bearers who constantly inflict and experience death, hurt, loss, and grief. The Father, however, was not content to leave the world as it was and entered into history as Jesus. God himself entered into history to reconcile us to the Father. We believe here that Jesus was a real man, the God-man, who lived a perfect life, died a criminal's death on the cross, and three days later rose again. And it's after this resurrection that this guy, Paul, enters the story. He was a Pharisee, and more importantly, someone who dedicated himself to the eradication of Christianity and Christians. This is all recounted in the book of Acts. After killing some of the biggest names in the early faith, Paul was radically converted and spent the rest of his life telling people about Jesus. This Paul went on to write about half of the New Testament, and his writings were pivotal in shaping the church. But as we see from the writings of Tom Holland, not only the church, but all of history. Paul took a couple of younger pastors under his wing for a time. One was Titus, who got one book, um, and the other was Timothy, who got two. Not sure if that was an indication of how much help they needed or if Paul was playing favorites. I'll, I'll let you decide. But either way, Paul ended up in a jail in Rome, and we are now, as a church, reading the last writings of a titan of the faith, of a titan of history, who looms large almost as large as the God that he says that he worships. Where he was waiting execution, an execution that could have been avoided with a simple denial of his belief that Jesus was God. But there was an integrity that Paul had, a consistency between his words and his actions, an integrity to the point of death. These are last known words written by a spiritual father to a spiritual son who is ministering to a church in Ephesus, which is in some degree of strife. This book was probably written around about AD 67, just a few short years before the destruction of the temple that we talked about back being prophesied in the book of Mark. We have seen throughout this book Paul's constant encouragements to Timothy to be strong, to have confidence, to be reminded, chapter 1, verse 7, that God did not give him a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Timothy, back in Ephesus, is being asked to compromise, to give in to various groups in his community, to forsake the gospel. We have heard through this series the trials that Timothy is facing, and we are getting to the pointy end of this book. Paul is building to a crescendo after speaking in the preceding verses about the kind of life that you should have avoided, and today's passage, this pivots to the kind of life you should aim for. So let's first look at the couple of verses. Verses 10 and 11, a model to emulate. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy doesn't just admire Paul in the way that we could, from a distance, separated by a couple of thousand years. But when Paul mentions that Timothy has followed his teachings, his conduct and life, that's from this position of relationship. 
If there was anyone who would have known about the inconsistencies in Paul's life, it would have been Timothy. They had this close relationship over some 20 years. They had a relationship as co-laborers in the task of pastoral ministry. They were friends. Paul referred to Timothy as his child in the faith. And Paul then takes this opportunity at the end of his life as he is encouraging Timothy, a young pastor, towards faithfulness. To be courageous in the Spirit by pointing to the work that Jesus has done in Paul's own life. Paul was far from perfect. Throughout his letters, he admits his failings and his struggle towards holiness. Perfection is not what Paul was pointing towards. But the totality of his life, his victories, his losses, and for Paul, there were many. The heartbreak, the stumbling, but also the getting back up. I've recently been realizing that discipleship is caught far more than taught. While we can be deeply formed by those that we read, I believe we are far more often formed by those that we surround ourselves with. Timothy has been facing opposition, false teachers, those who are called lovers of self and lovers of money. And in my experience, we are facing different kinds of false teaching, lovers of self, lovers of money. You can have heaven now. This mindset exists both inside and outside the church, that we can be in paradise here. There are whole industries dedicated to selling us that idea. That through the accumulation of things or potentially by belonging to a particular group or being near these impressive teachers or people, that we can be insulated from the nature of life. This is something that's only too common in 21st Australia. Who are you aiming to emulate? This is the question that that begs. Who are you looking to model your life after? Right now, it's easy to be influenced by people on TV or Instagram or YouTube. These things provide a window into a carefully curated part of their lives, which is not completely dishonest, but it is incomplete. Even those who strive to be completely authentic on those platforms are unable to give you the one thing that Paul gave Timothy, which was time. Time. Proximity, life on life. For those of you who are younger, and frankly, all of us should be asking this question who are you coming alongside and wanting to engage with, learn from, be molded by? Whose conduct, wisdom, goals, faith, steadfastness, and patience are you being inspired by? Your life will be conformed to those that you spend time with. One paradox of the Christian life is that we are slowly being conformed to Jesus' image, but we see that image in the godliness of those around us. Honestly, a great place for this to occur is a life group, in small groups. We intentionally don't organize our small groups demographically for this purpose. We organize them geographically so that we can have multiple generations, multiple life stages in the same room, learning from, sacrificing for, being inconvenienced by one another for God's glory and our good. For those of you who are older and have influence, first, are you living a life worth following? Second, 
Are you creating opportunities to live your life open to others, particularly younger people who you can encourage towards life with Jesus, who you are pursuing when they stumble, who you are pursuing when they are discouraged or come up against opposition? And third, are you showing all of your life, not just the highlight reel? As we read on, we see that Paul showed it all. And this is our mountain to climb. So verses 11b through 13, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I suffered, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul is one that has become well acquainted with suffering. When he speaks of what happened at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, it was effectively a story of him getting beaten up by the inhabitants of the town for preaching the Bible. In Acts 14, Paul went to this town, Lystra, and was like, these guys are super messed up. They need to hear about Jesus, and the crowds loved it. But this didn't go over super well with the authorities who took Paul, stoned him, uh, which is grabbing these massive rocks and chucking them at him before, thinking that he was dead and dragging him out of the city. What the Bible says happened after that is that disciples gathered around him, thinking that he was probably dead, but then he hopped up. I was like, gosh, these guys really need the Bible, hopped up and went back into the city and kept on preaching. Paul lived a hard life. In Galatians, he describes his body as being so beaten up that it bore the signs of the crucifixion. The promise that Paul makes in this passage is that he has lived a life that has been marked by love, by patience, steadfastness, and that life has also been marked by suffering. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For those of you who have sat in church for any time at all, will it will have heard that we believe that life with Jesus is better, more fulfilling, and is one that is marked by joy. But it would be a mistake to say that it is free from suffering. Suffering and persecution is actually the one thing that this passage's, passage promises us as Christians. We believe in Jesus, who was a homeless traveling rabbi who died a thief's death on a cross and was buried in a borrowed tomb. We are now reading and learning from a guy, Paul, whose body was mangled and broken before being executed. And every one of those 12 disciples, apart from Judas, who betrayed him, was killed for preaching the gospel. Except for John, who was boiled in oil, didn't end up dying and was exiled to live the rest of his life on an island, which, to be fair, for some of the introverts in the room might sound like heaven. Um, But we must become comfortable and reconcile that this life of faith is one that will be marked by suffering. Have you really grappled with that? And on that point, I want to quickly say two things. Our answer for the hard things in life is Jesus, and that's not pithy. We believe in a man who suffered on a tree to bring us home, wipe every tear from our eyes, and will one day make all things new. And when we have gone through those trials with Jesus, when I have gone through those trials with Jesus, it has been suffering which has weighed me down, dropped me to my knees, and allowed Jesus to take those burdens from my shoulders and driven me deeper into the arms of my Saviour. 
But this isn't just Paul that's being put forward in this text as a model for faithfulness. As we go to verse 14 and 15, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which have been able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We have heard in early weeks about Lois and Eunice, Timothy's mother and grandmother who taught him the sacred writings. It was from his mother's breast that Timothy was being made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. To the point of discipleship being caught rather than taught, I was encouraged reading the story of this Wesleyan minister, James Watkins. Whenever I came downstairs for breakfast, there would be my dad, before heading off to work at the factory, sitting in the kitchen at the table reading his Bible. I never once heard him say, Jim, you ought to start your day reading the Bible. Or, Jim, you should make Bible reading a priority. No. He just sat there reading his Bible as I got ready for school, every work and school day. So, what will you find me doing early every morning? Reading my Bible. The only difference between me and my dad is that I'm in my recliner reading it online. But dad silently communicated with his loudest voice the importance of starting each day with God and his word. And that's how most discipleship takes place. It's caught rather than taught. I can't recall one thing I learned in our official family devotions, which we had before bed. Mostly I was thinking about anything other than the Bible lesson. But I've never forgotten the importance of taking time to read the Bible. Reading the Bible. Our culture thinks that it's a joke at best and dangerous at worst. And because of this, the temptation that we may face as Christians is to distance ourselves from this book. What could we possibly get from the Bible? A means for guidance. As we look forward into verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In a specific sense, this book of 2 Timothy was written from a pastor to a pastor, and that angle runs all the way through First and 2 Timothy and Titus, and that shouldn't be downplayed. This text supports the specific application that the Bible will help the man of God, which is likely an encouragement for Timothy and other pastors more so than other believers. Man of God, uh, similar to like son of man being a specific messianic identity for Jesus, man of God is used elsewhere in the Bible as a title for God's spokesman or a leader throughout Scripture. In Deuteronomy 13, it refers to Moses. In 2 Chronicles 8, it is David. In 1 Kings 17, it's used to describe Elijah. And while in this specific technical sense, it's referring to God's spokesperson, in a general sense, it is also true that every believer may be equipped and be made complete through the Scripture because it is sufficient. And I want to take a quick moment to outline a really, really brief theology of Scripture. And I'm convinced that this is one of the most formative and important things that you can be clear about as a Christian. What you think about Scripture will form what you think about absolutely everything else. Because this is your reference text. 
There are four essential attributes of Scripture. It's, it is sufficient, it is clear, it is authoritative, and it is necessary. These make a really handy little acronym, SCAN. The necessity of Scripture is the belief that, the gen, that general revelation is not enough. General revelation is that God reveals his existence through creation, but he doesn't reveal himself in a manner through which he can be known relationally. And that saving way is found through special revelation or through his book or through God's written word. We need God's word to tell us how to live, who Christ is, and how to be saved. That's the necessity of Scripture. The authority of Scripture is the belief that the last word goes to God. We can't let the teachings of culture, experience, science, or the church to take precedence over Scripture. And it speaks to the authority that God is actually telling us how to live our lives. And God has the right to do so because God is God and we are not. That's the authority of Scripture, that it is God's words. The clarity of Scripture is the belief that the saving message of Jesus is plainly taught in the Bible and can be understood by all those who have ears to hear it, that the Holy Spirit gifts us understanding to. We don't need a professional or a magisterium to translate it for us. R.C. Sproul has this great line. What kind of God would reveal his love and redemption in terms so technical and in concepts so profound that only an elite core of professional scholars could understand them? Another, another line that I, that I like is that the clarity of Scripture is the most Protestant of all doctrines. That there's this priesthood of all believers that we can go to the Bible and we can understand it. That is beautiful. That is sweet. And finally, the sufficiency of Scripture is the belief that it contains everything that we need for salvation and godly living. Kevin DeYoung has this fantastic book, which I would commend to you, called Taking God at His Word. It is small, it is easily readable on this topic, and I would encourage you to check it out. But DeYoung remarks in its pages that it is the necessity of Scripture that is the problem for the atheist. It is the authority of Scripture that is problem, the problem for the liberal. It is the clarity of Scripture which is the problem for our modern postmodernists. And it is the sufficiency of Scripture that we, the rank-and-file Christian, must often wrestle with. We are not saying now that the Bible is a science textbook. It is not a guide for your trip to Japan in 12 years when the borders finally open. It is not sufficient for medicine, for finances, for your taxes, or what you're going to be doing with your fantasy Premier League team. But it is more than enough for your walk with God. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our Father by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him, he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, this word made flesh. The Son is revealed in the Bible and he is all that you need. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. For teaching. For understanding this good doctrine, teaching us what is good, for rebu- for reproof, to be rebuked by the word when we go off course, for correction, so it'll give us the path back home so that we may be trained. Trained for what? For good works. Not a legalism to earn the favor or love of our God, but the natural consequence of a life which is committed to Jesus. The Jesus that we meet in its pages. So we have a mark to aim for. So what is this particular text highlighting about the Christian life? As the band comes up, we are reminded again of Paul. Integrity to the point of death. Paul is writing to Timothy, an old pastor to a younger one, saying, Be strengthened by the grace that you have learnt about since you were a young child. You learnt this from your mother and your grandmother. You learnt it from me. Trials will come. Storms will roll in. You will suffer. You will experience heartbreak. There will always be those who oppose you. But remember the Bible. It is sufficient for you. Courage, child. You are in the strong arms of your Savior. As I am, even as I walk to my death, I will not forsake him. He will not forsake me. So what are we to do? Where do we then go from here? I find this quote from Dan Patterson, a good friend of our church, to be so helpful. Christians not only possess the evidence, they are the evidence. What the resurrection is objectively, our transformation is subjectively. The evidence for this Jesus that your neighbor will see, your work friend, your family is your life. And I encourage you, if you don't see in yourself the love, the patience, the steadfastness and hope of Paul, pray. Ask that the same spirit which empowered Jesus, which empowered Paul, will empower you. In the pages of that sufficient scripture, he promises to do so. And pray that you may be consistent. Act with integrity. And ask for help not only from God and his spirit, but the tools that he has sovereignly provided for you. His sufficient scriptures and the people sitting around you. Brothers and sisters, this is a team sport. We need one another. The younger needs the older to look to for guidance. The older needs the younger to carry on the torch. We need one another and we all need him. Jesus, who is more than sufficient for our needs. Every week at LCC, we take communion. Communion is a time when we remind ourselves of God's sacrifice, where we proclaim our commitment to him and where we spiritually nourish our souls. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't, died the death that we deserved, and on the night that he was betrayed, he gathered the disciples around him. This bread is my body broken for you. Take it and eat. This wine is my blood spilt for you. Take it and drink. This is the blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins. 
Not only does this moment of communion remind us of our reconciliation to the Father, but 1 Corinthians 10, 17 reminds us that it is a symbol of our reconciliation to one another. We are all one body as we are nourished by the same bread, the same source. We have been reconciled to the Father by the same Jesus. And so if you don't have your little shot glass and wafer, the band will play. Um, We have some up the back and to the sides. And take it in your own time. And let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.